the Lady Eighty Show podcast. We talk about books, everything about books, and have great interview with authors. Here's one now. Great evening tonight with the Book Academy, and we'd like to really welcome Dr. Amy Jeffs. So welcome, Amy. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome. You're an art historian and artist, with a PhD in art history from the University of Cambridge. They do the wonders in the boat race. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes anyway, mostly. And you've researched or you're a researcher at the British Museum. Is that correct? I was. I did when I was doing my PhD, I lived in Cambridge and it was fairly easy to get to London. So I used to I won some funding to digitize their collection of medieval pilgrim souvenirs and secular badges and recatalogue them. So um, I had lots of fun doing that, looking at these little lead alloy objects that are often found in the foreshores of the Thames um, that speak of the great journeys that ordinary medieval people undertook across Christendom. Wow, because obviously your love is ancient, medieval and early modern manuscripts. Yes, yeah. So after I was at the British Museum, I spent some time at the British Library helping with another digitization project, but focusing on on manuscripts from 700 to 1200. Um, And that was also a great joy. So has any of that research and learning gone into the book Storyland or indeed Wild? Uh, Yes. um, When I was doing my thesis, um, my supervisor gave me a really interesting piece of advice, which was that uh, a, a PhD is a breeding sow. You don't have, you, you can deliver the piglets, but you don't have to rear them all in the thesis. He said, rearing the piglets is the books and articles of the future. And so that, those three years that I spent, um, that I spent working on my PhD and working, doing side projects at the British Museum, British Library, uh, that was all part of that delivering of the piglets. And the books that are happening now, I think are, are little rearing projects to elaborate on on a quite ridiculous metaphor um but yes so the storyland really is formed of many moments that I encountered during my PhD research my PhD was focusing on a a 14th century English manuscript with Britain's origin myth in it and lots of illustrations and it's a highly although it's probably a book designed for young readers it was a highly political politicized manuscript where King Arthur is shown holding the royal arms of England and there's a and he's sort of beating the governor of France on the head with a sword and then there's a prayer at the end of the text saying Edward III good luck have um, in your you know, claiming victory over the French king so it's a very thin thinly veiled if, if in fact not veiled at all um, political use of myth um, to promote the political ambitions of the contemporary king. So I was very interested in this and I, I became really inspired by, by the story um, of Britain's origins that was promulgated in the mid 12th century and was kind of the supreme origin myth until the mid 16th, the story of a Trojan called Brutus who is exiled from Rome. So the, the Trojans have fled the burning city of Troy. They've settled in Italy, they founded Rome. Um, Brutus has been born, he's the great grandson of Aeneas. Um, and he he ends up being exiled because he he kills his father in a hunting accident, and he goes off searching for a homeland. Um, he picks up some other refugee Trojans en route, and uh, and receives a prophecy from the goddess Diana that he's that uh, there is an island 
beyond Gaul in the Western Ocean. It's uninhabited, but for a few giants. And that's where he will go and build a new Troy and found a race of kings. Um, so this, this story sort of made, really made my heart leap. And I wanted to produce illustrations initially um, that kind of captured some of those really dramatic moments, the prophecy from Diana, um, the moment when his right-hand man, Coroneus, uh, wrestles a giant on the cliffs, a giant called Gogmagog. Um, the moment in later in the this this brute legend, as it's called after Brutus, when um, the child Merlin guides the building of Stonehenge on the Salisbury Plain. Uh, so it was started with pictures, and then and then became a book from there. But it was very much rooted in research, in answer to your question. Yes, and, and that really does come out because in your book you do the story and then the background to that story. And I had to pinch myself a few times to think, no, this is myth, because it came over as though it was real. And I'm going, oh, I didn't know that. And then I go, oh, but how much of that is true and how much isn't? So how did you oh. pick that um, or work that through when you were writing the book? Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Well, I what I wanted to kind of evoke was the very blurry distinction between art and politics and the way that these myths were, were, were believed to be history in the Middle Ages and were then used to justify real life wars and real life political claims. So that in some ways they have an, an element of reality to them, that it is tra translated into reality, um, even if we don't credit them now. Um, when I was choosing which stories to to include, I, it was important to me that there was that they had one foot on the ground of, of modern Britain so that there were places that could visit um, places that still exist um, where I could I could visit and kind of evoke the, um, the flora and fauna and the atmosphere of that place in the retelling. Um, and it was also important to me that it told a story that went from an empty island to an island that we would recognize or somebody in 1500 would recognize um, with a really exciting complement of marvels you know not not straight history but kind of magical realism mm. yes because um the whole giant thing and and from the biblical times as well uh, mm -hmm. quite fascinated me when i was reading it yes yes the idea that these things could be considered real or true if they were in the deep past you know that was a time when giants walked the land so was there any place, as you mentioned, sort of the places that members sort of read the book and thought, oh, I'd like to visit that place? 
did that come across as you were reading it at all? And if so, where where is it you would like to go because of Storyland? You can unmute yourself to answer that. Abby? Yes, um, I loved the book. So thank you very much for writing it. Um, I wanted to know a bit more about where the, the boar and the bear was, the king, the dog and the, the boar. The king, the dog and the boar. That's mm -hmm. the one. I'm just trying to find it in the book in front of me. Um, the Arthurian legends, like there's so much on TV about Arthur and it all mixes up in everything. So it's, I just I just thought actually is that a real place I really want to go so it's in the Brecon Beacons which is a, a mystical place for me anyway and having climbed up Penny Van and things like that it's mm -hmm. quite fantastic so what was it actually like there for you? Well we went to Radnorshire and uh, in, in it was Storm Dennis don't know if you remember that that, that horrendous well probably not bad by North American standards for the North Americans here but for British ones, it was a pretty good storm, and um, and so we uh, we climbed. You know, it's we it's um, an area which in the Victorian period was a whole lot of dams were built. So you you've got these enormous lakes in the valley, um, and that's the really the thing that that stands out when you go there now. But um, there's this a hill called Kangafalt, which um, you know, as you know from the book, is is mentioned by a ninth century historian. Um, called Nennius uh, in, a, in a text called the Marvels of Britain and he says that there's a cairn at the top that um, bears a stone with the paw print of Arthur's dog in it and that anyone that takes if that stone is taken away it, it, um, it would it will be back there by the next day just magically um, so yes that was a a place that I am I wrote the story first and I imagined what it was like you know, I was like, oh, I've been to the Welsh hills and the mountains so much. I've I've got a fair measure of of how I could describe this. I was writing in lockdown, so I couldn't go initially. Um, and then when things opened up and um, we were able to to travel there, um, it was fascinating how how much more um, dramatic and complex the landscape was when when we were actually there I mean it was the fact that the thing one of the things that really stood out to me was how all of the stones on the walk up the hill were completely covered in moss and bright green they just looked like big mossy mushrooms um how the trees um had the, made the particular lichen that you could make a really good mustache out of like really shaggy um kind of pale bluey green whitish um lichen um, and then when you got up onto the hill, just the magnitude of the landscape and the, the way that you could see kind of layers of rain in the clouds. But when we got to the top of the hill, like, and I describe it in the book, the, the weather clears, but there's still this heavy overcast like layer of cloud above. And you could see the sort of sheets of, of rain in the distance coming through the clouds. And it was just massive and incredibly dramatic. And what, what it drove home to me was this this other reference to the story or to, um, in which the dog appears, Cabal, oh, that's the name of the dog and the, the hill bears his name, um, is all about Arthur going on this huge hunt, chasing this mythical boar joint um, from Ireland through Wales, over the Severn, down into Cornwall. And I thought this is about the characterization of Arthur. Um, this isn't 
that if you if you really under can cap can grasp or you're familiar with how massive this landscape is and the reality of trying to cross it when you don't have cars and motorways um this story of arthur taking this enormous journey across this wild terrain over these enormous hills underneath this ferocious weather is an expression or a way of, of communicating um, in these stories the the magnitude of arthur himself um, and his heroism uh, but it was it was a wonderful place to visit even though the stone can't be found <laughs> yeah i was wondering as well whether you actually kept looking for poor prints even though you didn't really expect to find one whether you kept oh is that one is that isn't it one yes oh i mean the part of the problem was the can there are two there were lots of things that could have been cans and some of them were made of slabs of concrete and I was like I don't think the concrete's original um <laughs> but it was a yeah, it was a very exciting place to visit um, and I was also it's also a very dog family um listen dogs man's best friend here really sort of came through like Arthur was the first person to really cherish the dog in the in England so English men's best friend as well so I thought that was quite yeah I, nice. I wanted it's hard, you know, characterizing Arthur is so tricky because I instinctively don't don't like him in most, you know, when, when I think about how I could portray him, it's a sort of, whereas I thought I can imagine, a, I know about the relationship between dogs and their masters, and that's a really, somebody that's good with animals is somebody that I like. So the way that the dog just is, adores Arthur and then Arthur's kind to him. I felt like that was a way that I I could treat Arthur as a really sympathetic and likable character um, without having to, to describe him myself more directly. Right. Well, just, just in that description, you've taken us back to the Brecon Beacons. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Heather, Thank did you. I see you trying to frame a question or something? Comment? I, I have a question, actually. Um, it's interesting because... My husband's a genealogist and has traced back my family through the kings and queens of England. And of course, as you go back further, you then, then get from your Edward the Confessor and then in, back into uh, William the Conqueror and so on. And if you keep going back, you get to Woden, which is all the where the mythical bit comes, because you mm -hmm. can do the, the written um history but then it starts getting into the myth history as son of and son of and it's only said to be mm -hmm. so i as i know i'm related to all these amazing people yeah who in history having read extensively who in history would you most love to find you were related to albina if uh, she's a myth oh, yes but i think that would be pretty cool this kind of wild um antler wielding sort of living off the land uh upstart <laughs> that's a really lovely question thank you it was Eleanor of Aquitaine for me I was oh like, yes she's that's my a good great one. grandmother she's really? my great grandmother and it's just amazing to know that and oh, really next when you find that out yeah have you been to see her effigy at Fontevraud yeah, she's massive. I mean, obviously, she wasn't actually that big, but I, I think she's got thighs as much, as tall as I am. I mean, she, she's just—I love the way she. I think you know she was behind the patronage of those effigies, and um, and the way she styles herself is this reminds me of Queen Jadis in *The Magician's Nephew*, just like larger than life, absolute unit of a woman with like these long muscular limbs and just oh, brilliant. 
<laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I've got a question particularly about the um, illustrations. I've just started a, a graphics course and we've been doing a lot of lino cut um, and lino printing. So I was fascinated by all, uh, and I was like, going backwards and forwards going what's that bit about what's that an image of and trying to work out exactly who was who in each of the Im images um what um how long did each lino take you to do um and did you just do them in one color did you experiment in lots of other colors did you yeah. did you digitally alter them any of them yourself or did that all do someone else do all that oh okay thank you lovely question um so some I, I tend to work quite quickly and I quite like to sketch onto the block. So I, I have them, I tend to stain it with indelible ink and then sketch the design on in chalk pen so that I can see it like just drawing in white on black so I can already see how it's going to look. I have never worked in any other colours than black and white just because I'm quite a goth, I think, secretly and not that secretly. Um, and um, so... And, and so I would I'd probably spend an afternoon doing most of the images, but um, I'd be dreaming about them for a bit beforehand, like a week beforehand, be thinking about what I wanted to capture in from the story and what, you know, with illustrations that size, my uh, the, the chap who taught me to do lino cut, Chris Pig, he once said, you've got to think of it as a motif for the story. Um, so just something to, for me, you know, Gog Magog being thrown off the cliffs. Um, it was like a motif, not only it was it was sort of the, the art, I mean, you know, I didn't, I wanted them to feel archetypal, like it could be, it could be a, a symbol of extinction, that moment of the giant falling. Um, and I didn't, I was very careful not to include too much um, by way of like period costume or technology so that they felt timeless. Uh, yeah, I, I, that really came across. I liked, they were so symbolic rather than actual and liner cuts hard to do lots and lots of detail in um I really liked the uh, one in Havelock the Dane with the corpses being upright it's, but mm. it, that could be used in I can't see if anyone can see that one yeah it's, it's not working it's, on background um but it sure. could that in some ways that could almost be a, a battlefield in the first world war of people crossing and that for me was timeless because war is the same no matter what so especially with thank the, you there, there's one, one illustration of Conwenna bearing her breasts to her sons to to urge them to make peace um when I was designing that I took it to the studio and I was like I've got this idea and it's you know, uh, that's actually based on a photograph from an uprising in Prague of a man in his dressing gown in the 60s bearing his chest to the gun of a tank and you know, I imagined her going onto the battlefield doing that. And initially the guards are kind of ready to defend. And then the, the, the sons say like, no, 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 this is my mother. But that, that vulnerability of, of um, that was in the photograph of the man in his dressing gown, that going in and being small and only flesh and, um, and standing up and being brave. You know, that's what I wanted to translate into that image. Um, and regarding the digital, I didn't, there's none of them have been digitally reworked in any way. I just, um, I just did the line. I wanted it to feel as much like a, like woodcuts in an early printed book as possible. Um, with Wild, my second book, 
Um, the only thing that, so in Storyland, they've been scaled down a bit so that they fit on the page. So they were like 23 centimeters by 13 when I carved them. Um, and uh, whereas in Wild, I've done wood engravings. So another relief printmaking technique, but on a much smaller scale. And they're printed to scale so that they, it does feel like they've been dropped into a traditional letterpress printing press um, with the text block. And it's, it gives that feeling of a real kind of book as artifact kind of thing. Cool. David, do you had a question? Yeah, so um, my sort of bit in the book academy is around words and origins of words and things like that. And there were a couple mm -hmm. of um, things that I came across that you, oh, you know where that comes from now. There was, um, so one, I, I was in a play a long, long time ago, which was an anthology of Shakespeare's London. And there was a, a phrase in that, that might have been from Thomas Decker or Ben Johnson or somebody, talking about London as Caesar's city of the Trinovantes. And I'd never, I didn't know where that came from so it was, ah. it was great to find that and the other one was one of Brutus's sons was called Locrin and mm -hmm. the three countries were named after the three sons and uh Britain sorry England was called Logria Loigria yeah um, but I speak a bit of Welsh and the Welsh word for England is Hloiger W-L-O-E-G-R mm -hmm. so um yeah where that came from now did you have any sort of aha moments when you were going through the stories putting the stories together where you thought ah that's where that word comes from. That's where that place name comes from. Um, I think the the one that I absolutely loved, and it it was the pedigree when it was looking at genealogical scrolls, and um, from the Middle Ages where they kind of go from top to bottom, um, you know, uh, with a with a it was like a long roll, and lots of noble families had their own genealogies made on scrolls where you've got the long central stem and then branches coming off for the children of so-and-so and but the main line coming in the middle and it was called a, a pied de grue a, a crane's foot which I, I put in one of the chapters um so you know that I loved that that pedigree comes from the foot of a crane um thinking about other moments I think one of the things that I found interesting was Gog Magog and the you know, I've had a few people say Gog Magog's not a giant it's Gog uh, two giants it's Gog and Magog um, and that you know it's sort of got both things are right and that Gog and Magog are these this apocalyptic tribe two two nations that that um, will come and sort of at the end times and ravage the land and um and so when Geoffrey of Monmouth wrote his Historia Regum Britanniae and called the giant Gogmagog, that's that's definitely what he's trying to evoke is that that apocalyptic kind of existential threat character. Um, and it's just so fun and ingenious. Um, it's a really good word. Quite often now my phone has got used to writing Gogmagog. So if I get got wrong or something like that or go, you know, it just goes Gogmagog. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Anyone else like to ask anything else of Amy? Jerry, if I could step in, or yes, um, um, yeah, Amy. I don't know whether you can take catch hold of this, but it's, it's the generational thing that began with the Normans. When you think that, when you think of Westminster Hall, I don't know that it's been there. Mm -hmm. The proportions of Westminster Hall are just vast. How was it? that within a generation they could come up with a place like that, populate the whole country, dominate the whole country from then onwards for nearly a thousand years. Was it something in their DNA 
you think, something they carried with them from generation to generation? Or were they just lucky and passed on what you've got is mine and what's yours is mine and I'm going to keep it and that's all there is to it because I inherited it? Or is there something more, is there more of a continuum? Was there something in the genes of these people, I wonder, that you were ever able to speculate about? It's pure speculation, but... Mm, my, um, if I've understood the question correctly, I'd say that if it's in the genes of people, we're probably edging slightly too close to, uh, to the kinds of scientific theories that, um, that led to eugenics. If you, you know, it's, uh, it's, I wouldn't, I would be loath. I'm not a geneticist, so I'm actually completely unqualified to answer it, but I, but I, I would suspect that it's, um, it's tricky to make those arguments without also implying that there's some yeah. kind of Aryan, you know, especially with the Norsemen and that kind of thing. Um, uh, sort of cultural um yeah status you know so my so regarding we were talking about you were talking about the architecture and the the magnitude of the great hall at westminster the vision that they had for what they were doing was so vastly different from where they came from where they were who were these people is what i always ask mm. myself well i think they'd think of themselves as heirs of rome i think rome and the 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 ruins left by the Roman um, Empire across Europe were enormously inspiring, and when you look at the cathedrals, the halls from from the kind of beginning of those great stone buildings, even even stone buildings in late in Anglo-Saxon England, you know, sort of things like uh, Saint Peter's at Wormouth Gyro, they are referring back to that they're, they're evoking. The glories of Rome, the Roma, and they're they're Romanizing. Um, they even the, some many of the cathedrals sort of take their dimensions from buildings like the Pantheon. Um, so, I think that by that point in the popular imagination, in the you know not even the popular imagination, in the elite imagination, Rome represented perf the the model of imperium, and that's what they were all aiming for was okay was empire. Um, yeah. I think you know when you read Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, he he um, has Arthur conquer Rome. He has Roman blood in the line of British kings, um, and the implication he's writing you know, he's writing for an elite Norman audience is that by appropriating this royal line, they too can claim that that descent from Rome. It's a really interesting question. Thank you. Yeah, well, sorry, just to finish up, it, it, I, I would have thought that from the manuscripts, by handling these manuscripts, it's almost as though you get a feel for the people. They were mm. extraordinary people, weren't they? Yes, I mean, the, some of the most like heart-stopping moments in handling manuscripts are actually when you think, when you realise the, um, you see not only the, the, the beauty of, of the work and the fineness of the work, but mistakes. Um, so I think... I was, I was in the Parker Library in Cambridge looking at a little 14th century brute chronicle. It wasn't particularly fancy. It just had a, a decorated initial at the start of each chapter. And the initial, each initial was painted with a little base coat of red and blue with then some, uh, oh, it would have been gilded first, then a little base coat of red and blue. And then some, once it was dry, some little white um, flourishes on top. But at some point between the red and blue coat being applied and the white flourishes, somebody with a really big thumb had come into the workshop and stuck, stuck it into the wet paint. Oh. And there was just this perfect, massive thumbprint. 
and you know I just imagine like oh you know Gregory what were you doing? get out <laughs> what were you doing in the workshop your head. <laughs> yeah there's no undo button in those days no exactly and that so that's um it's often the, the kind of magnificence and that is I mean I think I feel there's still about humanity and I'm sure many others do it's our sort of idiocy and beauty and um and skill all combined that that is is so fascinating um thank you thank you jerry then dennis uh hi amy this is all fascinating hi. um i have to confess i haven't read it yet but i'm really looking forward to because i love myths legends and storytelling you're forgiving but, um, <laughs> backtracking slightly to the giant conversation so I live in the forest of Dean in the Wye Valley and there's an area not far from me called the Doward and there's uh, King Arthur's cave is quite famous there mm. which is a um, you know a, a shallow cave in the limestone crags but uh, in the 1700s they found a giant human skeleton in there seven feet tall which was um, how the cave got its name because I guess the people who found wow. it said it must have been a rich and powerful man but actually, a lot of historians think it was more likely to be King Vortigern, who was a, a local king, Britannic, yeah. in the fifth century. I think I was just wondering if you were curious with that area. And um, I have spoke to like someone who used to work in the British Museum, and he said because apparently the skeleton, the giant skeleton, mysteriously disappeared when it was being brought to America for further sampling. And this guy who worked in the British Museum said. Um, yeah, many. There's been lots of cases of giant skeletons being found that all seem to mysteriously disappear. So maybe mm -hmm. that's another conspiracy. Are we going to blame the Americans then for this? <laughs> well, it got lost in the storm at sea, so we can't blame it on the Americans. But uh, <laughs> I thought it was quite curious. And like you said earlier, like all of this folklore arises from somewhere. Maybe these yeah. were some giant beings. But are you familiar with King Arthur's Cave? Where I'm talking, I'm, about? I'm not. I'm gonna. I must look it up. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a medievalist through and through. So 17th century feels like you know, yeah, I know um, <laughs> the year 3000 or something. Tony Robinson, you know, did a little segment on it and secret oh. one of these episodes of Secret Britain. Yeah. So you might be able to take that out. Well, Vortigern does crop up in Storyland, so you can find out maybe more about his medieval origins. Yeah, because um, they also found as well lots of uh, hyena bones and lion bones and bear bones in there. So amazing. Priority, I say to all of those yeah. animals that have been here, of course. In the 12th century, they supposedly found King Arthur's body buried in Glastonbury Abbey in a hollowed out oak tree. And it <laughs> says that each eye socket, it was, his skeleton was so big that each eye socket was the width of a, of a big man's palm. Wow. Um, and then they, they had him ceremonially uh, translated into a black marble tomb that was in Glastonbury Abbey until the dissolution. It's funny um, how there's so much Arthurian legend all over Britain, like Cornwall. As yeah, well, as and how say. often he mysteriously disappears. Yes, um, exactly. You know, so there's one of the one of the myths around Arthur's death is um, is that they were about to bury. He was he was they had the body or, or his he, he was dying or something like that. And then this mist descends. And they're all wandering around like in the pea soup, kind of <laughs> wondering what to do. And then it, it lifts and, uh, and there's a tomb, a completely sealed sarcophagus and no Arthur. And so they don't know if he's inside because they can't get in. And so they just have to treat it as his grave. But then there's also this question mark of where did he go? You know, um, 
adds to the mystery of the man. Yeah, you need the mystery as well. I think if we found all these giant skeletons like in somebody's um, you know, parlor or, or pantry or something one day in some big house, it would be a real disappointment. Right, yeah. we've got three hands up, so we're going to have to be fairly quick with the questions. Um, otherwise, we're not going to have any discussion time. So, Dennis, Bruce, and then Chris. Dennis? Yep, just um, undo that. Amy, thank you very much. I'm uh, still in the process. We argue over the books in this house because we only buy one copy. So, uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm getting through as I go. But, and I'm learning lots of new words, thank you. Um, and I'm sure David will put us to test at some point. Um, but uh, I'm, a, I'm an engineer uh, and I'm data driven. Mm -hmm. um, I just wondered how many, and I, I don't know the exact number, um, or even if you do, of how many manuscripts you actually read throughout that time and how many of them actually overlap to confirm each other? That's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, so some texts are more popular than others. So in the case of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, that I think hundreds of manuscripts survive with that text copied into them. Some are close contemporaries to the composition, or so you know, within decades of it having been composed at circa 1136. Uh, but they continue um, being copied for you know, a good 300 years. Um, then there are the various translations into Welsh um, and Middle English and French. Is it hugely popular in France, um, the matter of Britain, um, and that you, know, you might get hundreds of those surviving. Other things like the fragmentary life of St. Kentigern, 12th century, that exists in one copy in the British Library. When you do get multiple copies of a text, it tends to be pretty carefully copied from other manuscripts as a rule. Um, they were very, very concerned with the authority of text. You know, a book. When, when the norm was recitation, um, oral recitation of, of literature, um, the, the function of a book was to be an authoritative reference copy, just to go back and check you've got the right version of the text. Um, and you, you sometimes get annotations in the margins of, for instance, there is a collection of um, Thomas Beckett's correspondence from the 1180s in a British Library manuscript. Um, and it's a huge book, 10 years after his death. And so this is a really important compilation of texts. You've got a whole load of annotations in the margin by a man called Alan of Tewkesbury. Um, and he's comparing, he's got another copy of it. So only one copy of this, I believe, survives now. But he's also, he's got another manuscript with the same collection of correspondence in it. And he's cross-referencing and just checking that they text, they match up. And every now and again, he said, he puts Alio Librum in the other book it says, and he he's, he can you know will say if there's a difference in disparity. Um, sometimes you do get alterations to the text, but if they if you do so, the manuscript that I did my PhD on contained a uh, a version of Wace's Roman de Prout, which is a French translation of Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain that survives in many manuscripts. In the manuscript I was working on, it been drastically abridged and heavily illustrated. I argued for use by a young reader. Um, but that's done in quite a, a serious and decisive way. And there's no way you'd confuse it with the original. You see what I mean? So um, yeah, I think that they were a more bookish society than we are. You know, we get our media, um, our stories in, in 
preserved in many other ways but this this was you know books were extremely important and the accuracy and authority of textual copies was really important excellent bruce then chris and you so yeah, I I love the book. I, I love the liner car. I think that was really impressive. So uh, I'm very much a sort of a crafty person myself. So, uh, but that aside, it's not quite the question. Um, so I've been researching uh, well one family from sort of the uh, 12th and 13th century, and one of the problems I've got doing that research was discovering well partly the language because obviously I'm not used to medieval English. So trying to work out what's being said was a bit of a challenge and having to work out all these new words for things that was like a bovate for the land and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the discovery that some of the documents were actually confused and they were referring to a family that was not too far away in, in uh, Alfreton, as opposed to the one that was in North Nottinghamshire. And I was wondering, you know, when you were reading these old documents, were they clearly accurate or, or did you find that there were sort of inconsistencies where people had sort of misunderstood something that happened and you read another document that actually made it clear that, that this other document was wrong? Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't think there was anything quite like that with this material. The thing that popped into my head as you were saying that was the story of St. Alban and Amphibalus. So um, this was a very popular saint's life in the Middle Ages about a, a Romano-British saint called St. Alban and how he, he's initially, he's a pagan living in St. Roman St. Alban's, Verulamium, however you pronounce it. And, um, and he hides a priest called Amphibalus in the text um, from the Roman persecutors. This is in the, the Diocletian persecution. And, uh, and then in hiding the priest becomes familiar with Christianity and converts. It's believed that the um, the medieval version basically mistranslated that Amphibalus means cloak in Latin, and that actually the, this character is a, a very sort of strange Chinese whispers style um, misunderstanding of a story about a cloak. So his saint cloak in the you know it's a complete it's a sort of total fiction. It's not um, Saint Martin's cloak that you're thinking of. No, 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 I'm not. I'm, um, oh, yeah, it's uh, so basically when the medieval translators tried to turn this, this saint's life into a Latin story, they, um, they made a cloak into his own character. A bit, little bit like how uh, medieval depictions of Moses always show him with horns because the Hebrew had been mistranslated and it's, it says that um, he's got horns. Um, there are a few examples like that, a famous fairy tale one is that um, Cinderella's slippers were actually slippers, made as fur slippers. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. So I mean, yeah, I I'm trying to. I don't think there was any, any discrepancies in the text that I looked at for Storyland. They are all pretty sure of themselves. Oh, Thank okay. you. It was an interesting question. Okay. And just very, very quickly, if I can, just a quick, we have afterwards, the answer afterwards, um, medieval souvenirs being a bit rude. Anyway, maybe that one later. Oh, yeah, winged phalluses and stuff. Yes. Yes. Okay, Chris, it's good to end with you for the simple reason you brought this book to our attention. Yeah. Well, I've got a very simple question, um, but I want to 
I'll ask it and then just say a bit more. The question is uh, exactly how giant is a giant? Uh, the reason I'm asking this is uh, back in the 1970s when I was a undergraduate at the University of York uh, studying biology, I spent some time at York Minster measuring old bones. And there was a group of sacks on one side full of Anglo-Saxon bones and a group of sacks on the other side of the room full of Viking bones. And the idea was to see whether there was any... I can't remember the results. But one thing I do remember <clears throat> was uh, I opened one of the sacks and I pulled out a femur and it was huge. It's a massive femur. And I said mm. to the other people that, because I'd done a, measured a lot by then. So I could yeah, tell. how interesting. And uh, I said, look at this, it's enormous. And then I put it alongside my femur and it was shorter than mine. Wow. And I'm five foot eight, just for reference. So, so giants, uh, you know, we're possibly not all that giant, really. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think as well in the medieval imagination, when there's kind of no such thing as the supernatural, there's, you know, the supernatural and the natural are part of the same, same creation, same world. Um, I mean, if you you look at the Hereford Mapamundi, you've got the monstrous races in the Antipodes. You've got this kind of sliding scale of human to non-human. And some of the giants that you encounter in medieval texts are really big people. And they they might even be, you know, if they're um, Saracen, quote unquote, they might it might even be possible to convert them to Christianity or to assimilate them. Um, there are some giants who are completely... Um, lost you know they are they are a hundred foot tall and they um they are kind of damned from the start and they are monstrous um so i think it's a it's such a rich area of study and i think if you are interested in pursuing it there's a a woman called professor sylvia huo like huo h-u-o-t she wrote a book about giants in in um i think medieval french literature the other person who works a lot with giants and she's got some um, talks available on YouTube. She's a really brilliant speaker is Professor Alex Bovey at the Courtauld. Uh, she's worked on on the, the giants of Albion. She was my supervisor uh, for my master's. Um, and yeah, so it's it is a it's contentious and interesting. And mm -hmm. you know. um, I was just going to jump back to Dennis. AD's question very quickly, which was um, just to say that although there is this authority in the sort of text of manuscripts, this of preserving the, the authority of the text, there are often slight discrepancies or like or, or mistakes uh, that enable scholars to produce what they call stemma of medieval manuscripts. There's this kind of family tree where whereby the, the slow variations that are occurring in, in a single text, you can you can maybe help um, date the development of of the text and uh, you know it's a it's a, again another branch of um of medieval studies so family trees of manuscripts thank you now amy when you um uh, did the pro forma you gave some tips about reading and writing and then your favorite quote do you remember them or would you like me to read them uh was um i've forgotten the writing one but i can remember the quote Okay, well, the 
you're you say you'd like to read with the purpose mm -hmm. such as with a view to illustration or retelling mm -hmm. and your writing tip is to find a subject matter that makes your heart leap with mischief <laughs> because you say it's fruitless writing about something you don't find inspiring do you want yes. to unpack that a little bit yeah with pleasure um well i think that when i started my degree i um i quite enjoyed the, the the being set essays because you were then be given a reading list and although some of it was quite dense literature and you weren't expected to read at all you could kind of work your way through the reading list with a view to answering this question and you would read things you might your your natural interest might not have taken you to initially and then you get you get surprised along the way and kind of delighted by what you find um when i started illustrating Jeffrey of Monmouth. Um, I'd already thought I'd read him, the text, for my PhD research. But then when I started reading it to look for moments of, of strong visual impact, it was like a join the dots jumping from one amazing image to another. And I realized just how brilliant a story or, or set of stories the text was. Um, and I hadn't appreciated that till then. Um, I think that you know, what Storyland was, was a kind of an opportunity to go back through things I'd encountered in my research and then to look for new things that wouldn't necessarily form academic, the subjects of academic articles. They weren't discoveries in any kind of grand sense, but they were moments that I'd find found really delightful, sometimes in a really morbid and macabre way and sometimes in a innocent and, um, and sort of joyful way. Um, but they, that allowed, Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. you know, allowed me to kind of to, to say, okay, if I were going to, to rewrite this, what would I lean into? What do I find exciting? I think, you know, the Albina story of her and her sisters learning to live off the land um, I loved that. I was so surprised and, and that a medieval text had gone into such detail about the, um, the technology of, of basically survival skills with these 30 sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just that kind of pure aesthetic delight made it um, a pleasure to, to write about and to reinterpret. Okay. And would you like to finish with your favourite quote? Yes, it's George Burroughs. Um, I think it goes, there is, that life is very sweet, brother, who would wish to die. There is wind on the heath. How's that, brother, who would wish to die? Is that right? That's if right. I could have that on my face. Can you read it? Because I've forgotten the very last bit. Life is very sweet, brother, who would wish to die? There's the wind on the heath, brother. If I could only feel that, I would gladly live forever. Yes, yes. I always remember the life is very sweet, brother, who would wish to die. And that's something that Chris Pig, who taught me to carve lino, says. And I think the rest of the quote with its um, nod to the wilderness um, makes it even more beautiful. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, I'll head off now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Lady AD Show podcast. Come back, subscribe, and we'll do this all over again. Bye-bye.